This podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my grandmother, Rebison Rifka Walby of Blessed Memory, who passed away in Jerusalem several weeks ago at the age of 96. She was raised in the Lithuanian city of Slabotka, home of the famed Slabotka Yeshiva that her father, Rabbi Avroham Grudzinski, headed. She was a Holocaust survivor who experienced unimaginable trauma and tragedy during those hellish years, yet she persevered and built a beautiful family and stood by her husband's side as he founded and led multiple yeshivos in the land of Israel. She was a true woman of valor, a princess, a woman of sterling and noble character and stoic resolve. I plan on sharing a bit of her story and the story of her illustrious father in a future podcast episode, but for this podcast, I want to select an idea from her father, Rabbi Avram Grzynski's wealth of Torah insights. The idea is a very, very deep idea. It's a very subtle idea, but it's an idea that is widely applicable in every area of spiritual growth that we're trying to accomplish in our lives. And I want to begin by introducing the villain. The villain in the story and the villain essentially in our life is an entity called in Jewish literature the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. The Talmud tells us in the book of Bava Basra, I believe it's page 15 or 16a, can't remember off the hand, it says that this entity, this enemy of ours, has three names. Name number one, Yetzahara, evil inclination. Name number two, Satan, the Satan. Name number three, Malachamavis, the angel of death. This is a three-headed monster that is our chief antagonist in life. The Talmud tells us, if you were to distill the entire reason why the Almighty gave us Torah into one sentence, the sentence would read as follows. I created the Yetzirah, I created the Torah as its antidote. The Talmud even compares the Yetzirah to a serpent, like the snake in the Adam story, and the serpent has venom, and the venom needs to be defended, needs to be removed with the antidote that is Torah. Thus, if we look at kind of Jewish life, Jewish philosophy, Jewish responsibilities, if we look at the big picture, it's a battle between the forces of the Yetzirah that we have and the tools of Torah that we have to combat that. In fact, it's implied, even though it's not quite clear, this is maybe a little bit of a tangential point, it's implied that if we didn't have Torah, we would not be able to overcome and defeat the Yetzirah. Which, as an ironic aside, if not for Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, we wouldn't have had Torah. Because Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, says Rashi, Rashi tells us, Rashi, the greatest commentator, of course, he tells us, quoting from the Talmud of the Sages, that as a result of the sin, Adam and Eve got the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. It kind of crept into them. In the words of the Talmud, the snake bit them and infused them with very harmful, deadly, fatal venom. If we didn't have that venom, 
we don't need the antidote. If you're not sick, you don't need the remedy. We're sick. We have the Eitzahara. We've been inflicted and smitten by the venom. And we have the Torah as its antidote. That's big picture Jewish philosophy. Now, there is an incredible amount of literature in the Talmud and all the Talmudic sources in the Midrashim and the commentaries about this big picture and trying to identify the exact characteristics of the enemy and the exact characteristics of the remedy and how we're supposed to engage in battle. There's a lot of details in that. But I want to share with you one statement from the Midrash, which kind of shows us a little bit about our deadly foe, our formidable antagonist. The Midrash in Tehillim tells us that when two people meet, you meet someone, and you spend an hour with them, what happens? You become friendly. It's just natural. You meet someone, most people are kind of nice. You meet them, you spend some time with them, have some have a coffee with them, and you know what? You like them. And then they have like a favorable place in your heart. That's the way it is with most people. Says the Midrash, the Yetzahara was created with you at birth. Meaning, how old you are. You look at your passport, you look at your driver's license. How old are you? That's exactly how long you've been in companionship with your Yetzahara. So you would think, if I spend an hour with someone, I become friends. If I spent 31 years with someone, all the more so, we'd be best, best friends. That's what you would think. But no points out the Midrash. Every single day, the evil inclination, the Yetzirah, is trying to trip you up and trying to make you flounder and suffer and succumb. The venom is trying to attack you. And if, it, if it's unsuccessful once, it'll try again. And if it's unsuccessful a hundred times, you would think maybe it will just kill over and die. It'll raise the white flag of surrender. It will yield? Absolutely not. It will keep on attacking you, trying to make you falter until the day you die. That's the enemy, says the Midrash, that we have within us. Terrifying indeed. So what I wanted to share tonight is I want to kind of condense an incredible amount of Talmudic wisdom and guidance in navigating this battlefield, essentially. In fact, you look at many Jewish sources, it compares the war with the Yetzirah to, to war, to warfare. Who is the mighty one? He who conquers his evil inclination. Says the Talmud in the book of Nadar on page 32, the Yetzirah is like a besieging army. It's laying siege to us. This is a war. The Torah, that's our battlefield plans. I want to condense a lot of that wisdom into one core idea that is applicable in many different ways. I want to distill the battlefield tactics to one underlying principle that can be played out in a multitude of ways, and we'll show some examples of how they can play out. And this idea, this profound idea, comes from the teachings of Rabbi Abraham Grudzinski, who happens to be my great-grandfather, who was the illustrious spiritual dean 
of the famed Slabatka Yeshiva. Before World War II, the, the, one of the most famous yeshivas, Talmudical institutes in the world, was in a small town in Lithuania called Slabatka. This was considered the mother of all yeshivos. Yeshiva that we have today, Talmudic institution we have today, almost all of them, their spiritual antecedents lie in Slabatka. So my great-grandfather, Rabbi Abraham Grzynski, he was the spiritual dean of that institution. And in his book, Torah Savram, the Torah of Abraham, on page 60, he shares, I think, an incredibly deep and profound idea that, again, is widely applicable in every area and every strategy and every tactic that we are to use in this battlefield. This is where the core of the methodology lies. So he begins with an interesting question. As I mentioned earlier, and as Rashi teaches us, and as the Talmud teaches us, the primary outcome of Adam and Eve's sin was that they, afterwards, post the sin, thenceforth, they were influenced by the Yetzirah. So previously, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, well, that's the snake. That's something that's outside of them. Post-sin, that venom became internal. They became knowing of good and evil, meaning that both good and evil are internal motivators. Internally, they're driven to good, and internally, they're also driven to bad. And everything that happens right after that episode in chapter 3 of, of the book of Genesis, it's all a reflection of their newfound reality. As an example, what, what does the Almighty say to Adam as a result of your sin— with the sweat of your brow, you'll eat bread. You'll have to sweat really hard to earn a living. What does that mean? What that means is, Adam and Eve, in their sin, they welcome, so to speak, the evil inclination within them. They welcome the opportunity to obviate the need for God. They welcome the opportunity to have an alternative to God. And you know what God says? Oh, you want an alternative? I'll give you an alternative. Previously, the fruit fully prepared and ready to eat grew out of the ground. No effort needed. Well, in such a world, it's impossible to deny God. They say, oh, you know what? We want the evil inclination. Oh, you want the ability to deny God? Now you're going to have to sweat for your food. And when you sweat really hard in the field, working to plow and to plant and to harvest and all that, to finally get the loaf of bread, you're like, I did that myself. God wasn't involved. I worked so hard. It was the sweat of my brow that created this food. That is the direct consequence of his sin is that he allowed an alternative world where God can be ignored. And therefore, he got what he asked for. Similarly, a woman, right, she has a baby. You did great, the nurse tells her. What, what did she do? Again, of course, she did a lot. But ultimately, God produced the new baby. Of course, if you think about what happens kind of biologically and what results, of course, God created the new baby. What the woman do after all? She didn't create a new we can't. We can't do that ourselves. Only God can make a new human out of biological matter, only God could do that. But now it's so hard for her, and she's so consumed with her own pain in her head, she created a new human, not God. Again, 
all these are like smoke screens, separations between man and God. That is a direct result of the initial sin. But wait a minute, asks Rabbi Gradinsky. Adam and Eve committed a sin. As a result of the sin, they got the Yetzirah. They got the evil inclination. Meaning that before the sin, they didn't have the evil inclination. Ergo, it's possible to sin even without an evil inclination. And the question is obvious. Wait a minute. If the evil inclination is what makes us desire sin, what, pray tell, made Adam and Eve desire sin before they had the evil inclination? If they only got the evil inclination as a result of the sin, before the sin, they didn't have the evil inclination. Well, what inclined them to desire to eat from the fruit that was forbidden? If they only received the force that prompted them to desire sin as a result of the sin, the sin itself was prompted by what? How could they choose sin without a force instigating sin, without a force propelling them down that forbidden path? That's a very deep question. So his answer is going to sharpen for us exactly what the Yetzirah does and what the Yetzirah doesn't do. Rabbi Grzynski develops a new principle, a foundational, fundamental principle in Jewish philosophy. And that is, there's two reasons why someone would sin. Either because logically they decided to choose the sinful option, number one, or number two, because lustfully they choose to desire the option for sin. The choice to do the will of God, to do the mitzvah, or to disobey the will of God, to sin, that choice existed even before the evil inclination was present. However, there is a very stark difference between the, the choice that Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve had before the sin and the choices that they had after the sin. It wasn't that the choice of to sin or not to sin didn't exist prior. The choice existed prior, but it was a strictly logical choice. They had nothing, they had no evil inclination, no lustful desire to pursue one way or the other. However, as a, re- as a result of the original sin, now they have the evil permeating within them, pulsating within their veins is the evil inclination. And now, not only is there a choice to sin or to not sin, but there's a lustful component added on top of it. And therefore, this is the beginning of the idea. When we realize what the Yetzirah does... He doesn't create a new opportunity that didn't exist prior. Prior, there was no choice. Now there is a choice. No. The choice existed even before Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. The only difference is that now the choice to sin or not to sin is influenced by the deception, so to speak, of the evil inclination. He adds a component atop the choice And now we are drawn much more heavily towards the choice for sin. That's his idea. And then he explains 
he kind of develops this idea a little bit further based upon a Talmud in two places, in the book of Yoma and the book of Sanhedrin. The Talmud is dealing with an event that forever altered the spiritual history of humanity. We know, we read about ancient societies, and the one thing that's so striking, for example, you read Deuteronomy, and what's the one thing that Moshe, that Moses is warning the people about more than anything else? Don't submit yourself to idolatry. That's the theme he hits again and again and again and again. Don't bow down to them. Don't offer sacrifice to them. Don't offer, water li- don't offer wine libations to them. Don't hide them. Don't kiss them. Don't revere them. Don't swear on their names. All kinds of warnings against idolatry. What was idolatry? They would make a figurine and they would bow down before it and they'd genuflect in front of it and they'd say, you're my God. Oh, amazing. And we look back at those societies of yesteryear and say, my goodness, these people must have been so unsophisticated. How is it possible that someone would take a figurine in the corner and start bowing down, prostrating themselves before that? This was such a big deal. Everyone was so consumed by this. Moshe had to warn about this more than anything else in the Torah. It seems so odd that people were so desirous back in yesteryear, in antiquity, for idolatry. It doesn't make any sense to us. And we're kind of taken aback by the tremendous amount of effort expended in the Torah to warn against it. My goodness, who would want to do that stuff anyhow? It doesn't make any sense. And the Talmud, in the, again, the book of Sanhedrin and the book of Yoma explains what actually happened. This is from Sanhedrin 64a. It says that the men of the great assembly... This is a group of Jewish leaders who are the Supreme Court of the land, and they exist for about 100 years, roughly from the year 350 before the Common Era to the year 250 before the Common Era, roughly. And great names of Jewish history, like Ezra, for example, are part of this assembly. Shimon the Righteous, amongst others. It says that the men of the great assembly, they made a convention And it was a three-day-long convention. And what did these great rabbis do for three days? Well, you know what they didn't do? They didn't eat. And they didn't drink. They fasted for three days. And they prayed for three days. What was the nature of the prayer? The nature of the prayer was to get rid of the evil inclination for idolatry. And the Talmud even tells us the text of their petition. Quote, This is what destroyed the temple, idolatry. This is what burned the sanctuary, idolatry. This is what killed the tzaddikim, the righteous, idolatry. This is what exiled the nation. And this idolatry is still dancing among us. We don't want it, and we don't want its reward. For three days, a hundred of the greatest sages of the nation are praying and fasting to get rid of the evil inclination for idolatry. After three days of fasting and prayer, the Almighty says, I give in. And he hands them the, I, the, the evil inclination for idolatry, which they promptly neutralize. Before this event, there was something, there was, a, there was a lustful desire for idolatry that we cannot fathom. 
We can't wrap our head around it. To us, it seems crazy that someone would bow down genuflect in front of an idol. doesn't make any sense to us. We see zero appeal to it. Says the Talmud, that's only a result of this petition of the men of the Great Assembly 23 some odd hundred years ago. They prayed to get rid of the evil case of idolatry. And therefore, in the world that existed prior to that event, people were so desirous after this idolatry that it makes today's desire for all kinds of forbidden themes seem like peanuts. In fact, the Talmud says an amazing story. Talmud says that the great rabbi, Rav Ashi, who was the author, who was the codifier of the Talmud, one, one, one day he was giving a lecture and he quoted Menashe, who was the king of Judah. And he quoted Menashe, this is Menashe, king of Judah. The problem with Menashe is that he was a king that went in the ways of idolatry. So that night he has a dream and Menashe shows up to him in his dream. And he says to him, why are you quoting me without any reverence in your lectures? He says, well, you're, you're an idolater. Well, well, why, why should I accord you any honor? So Menashe, king of Judah, says to him, listen, you, Ravashi, greatest sage of the Jewish people, this is in the fourth century of the common era, if you were alive in a time where people still had a Yitzhak, evil inclination for idolatry, not only would you worship the idolatry, not only would you run to the idolatry, but you lift up your your garment, you'd, you'd raise your robe so you could run faster to go join the idolatry club. That's how severe this desire was when there was an evil inclination for it, but now it's totally gone, and now we live in a different world. Continues the Talmud. After the success of the members of the Great Assembly in ridding the world of a desire for idolatry, they said, you know what? It's obviously a fortuitous time. This is an auspicious time. Let's move on to the next thing on the docket. Let's get rid of the desire for sexual illicit activity. And they said, okay. So they started praying. Let's get rid of that Yetzirah, that inflation too. And you know what? They were successful too. Okay, we got rid of the two major sins that people are desirous of. But then what happened? Three days later, they needed a freshly born egg, freshly hatched egg. And you know what? Even the chickens stopped procreating. And then they realized the world cannot continually exist if we get rid of this desire too. And therefore, they said, you know what? Let's meet him halfway. Let's get rid of the desire, but only for direct relatives, meaning that man will no longer be desirous of his sisters and of his mother. And that's where the Talmud ends. Says Rabbi Drojinsky, this Talmud is indicative of the two kinds of choices that exist in the world. There's two kinds of choices. Like we said, there's question, there's choices of sin that have a logical component, and there's choices of sin that have a lustful component. Today, is it possible to do idolatry? Yes. It still is possible to do idolatry. I could still put up an idol here, and we could still bow down and say, you're my God. Do we have any desire whatsoever for that at all? Nothing. Because now, 
it's been denuded of its spiritual force, of its lustful component. All we have left is the actual choice for sin. And you know what? It's not appealing at all. Similarly, says the Talmud, that same principle applies with respect to man sinning or man desiring his sister or his mother. The zero lust for it, and therefore, even though you have that same choice, but you're not affected in the same way that you were prior. How did Adam and Eve, how did they sin before the infusion of the evil inclination? The answer is they sinned because there was still a choice to sin. But you know what there wasn't? There wasn't a lustful desire for it. After they sinned, well, then everything changed. Now there's lust in the world. But even without lust, you can still make a choice. It's just you're not being compelled in one way. It's like we have a choice today to do idolatry. It's not so appealing for us, but it's still possible to do it. Meaning, and this is the final point before we apply it to our subject. The men of the Great Assembly, what they did when they removed the lust for idolatry and the lust for one's sisters and mother, what they did is they restored these areas to the way they were prior to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, prior to the infusion of the evil inclination. They essentially removed the lustful component to these sins. And all they have left, all they restored it with, it was left with the same choice, but no lust for those options. I want to kind of take this now to a more practical uh, level. In my opinion, if we were to go through the advice of the Talmud and the various other Talmudic era sources about how to engage with the enemy, with the Yitzhahara. It seems to me that all of the advice, all of those suggestions, all of the tactics given to us to avoid sinning, they are all rooted in this fundamental, fundamental point. And that is that what the Yitzhahara is creating for us is not a new choice, rather it's altering an existing choice. And therefore, the proper way to combat it is to not argue with it on its terms. If you say, hey, there's such a huge lust, I have such a desire for this, the Yetzirah is so strong. If you fight it on that grounds, you're probably going to lose. Because the only way to win is to muster up the intestinal fortitude to combat, to resist, to overcome. And that's very difficult. But the correct way to do it is to try to find a way to restore the options to the pre-original sin kind of choices. And by doing that, you're stripping away, so to speak, the sizzle from the substance. And once you just have the substance... Do you want to do idolatry? Do you want to not do idolatry? No, I have zero desire to do idolatry. And it's much easier to reject the suggestions of sin out of hand. If we could find a way to reframe the choices, 
not to respond to the challenge, but to reframe, to reorient, to kind of position the choice in a way that is of the pre-Adam's sin variety, it's very easy to win, just as it's easy today to not do idolatry and to not be desirous of your relatives. Let's do a survey of some of the suggestions or perspectives found in our sages in the Talmud, in the writings of our sages of the Talmud, and see how they fit into this perspective. And I think every one of the suggestions that we will pose, quoting from the Talmud and other sources, it's quite clear how it fits into this model that we have presented. So, for example, the Talmud of the, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 107a, it discusses someone who made a miscalculation. Uh, the person was wary of having lots of sexual desire. And therefore, the way the Talmud says it, he engaged in nocturnal activities during the day. But he made a miscalculation. Why? He forgot a principle. Which principle did he forget? He forgot the principle that the Talmud says in two places. There is a small organ in man. If he satiates it, it is hungry. If he starves it, it is satiated. If someone's hungry and they eat, you know what? They're not hungry anymore. That's the way things work normally. Comes along the Talmud and says, there's one part of a person's desires. There's one organ that a person has, which incidentally it's at the centerpiece of man's war with the Yitzhahara. It doesn't operate as, we, as you'd expect. Ostensibly, if you're hungry and you're fed, well, the hunger goes away. But here it's exactly the opposite. If he satiates it, it is hungry. If he starves it, it is satiated. This organ operates in the exact opposite way that you would expect. The way to feed it is not by capitulation. It's not by giving in to the desire. Rather, it's quite the contrary to the exact opposite. The way to feed it is by withholding the thing that is a professed need. And I think this is, again, illustrative of this idea that what the Yetzirah is introducing is something that's really illogical, at least in this, in this instance. Logically, if, we're, if we could strip away everything that the Yetzirah is telling us and just evaluate it the way we're able to evaluate idolatry, we'll realize that there's a, a major flaw in the preposition. The preposition is, well, you're hungry. Feed yourself. And here we see that no. If you feed it, you get even hungrier. If you starve it, well, then you're full. And logically, we could realize, if we could again remove the eight Sahara, we could realize that submission is not going to quench the desires. But here, again, we see quite clearly how the eight Sahara is going to play a role. It's very hard to recognize the logical aspects of these 
conflict amidst swirling lust. And again, but th- this is what our sages are telling us. So, for example, in Pirkei Avot, in Chapters of Our Fathers, Mishnah number one of chapter two, it says, this is the advice. What does it say? Calculate the benefits of a mitzvah with its loss and the benefit of a sin with its loss. Meaning, we're encouraged to make a cost-benefit analysis, to like try to put our decisions in a spreadsheet and say, okay, what do I gain with the mitzvah and what do I lose with the mitzvah? What do I gain with the sin and what do I lose with the sin? Making decisions in a spreadsheet is making decisions in the logical sphere. Of course, we don't make decisions on a spreadsheet and therefore the ability that the Yetzirah has to influence, influence us with lust, it's present. They were told, you got to calculate what's the benefits here, what do you gain, what do you lose, make a list, what's the pros, what's the cons. We don't operate like that, but we're told to operate like that, meaning we're told to restore the equations, to restore the dilemmas, to restore the choice to where the choice Adam had before his sin. That's one example. A second example, this is quoted by Rashi in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 39. This is chapter 15 of the book of Numbers is where we learn about the tzitzis, the mitzvah of tzitzis, the third portion, the third paragraph of the Shema that we say multiple times a day. The verse tells us, Lo sasuru You do the mitzvos, you look at the tzitzis, you remember the mitzvos, the commandments of God, and you won't deviate after your heart and after your eyes. So what does this mean, you won't deviate after your heart and after your eyes? Says Rashi, quote, The eyes and the heart are traitors against the body. Your eyes and your heart are working against you. Why? Because they're facilitating sin. How so? The eye sees, the heart desires, and the body sins. Essentially, what Rashi is telling us is, a sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen spontaneously. Really, with, if, if you kind of wall yourself in, there's no sin. Sin has to kind of artificially elbow its way in front of you. If you starve it and you're satiated... Well, how could you possibly actually desire sin? Internally, you don't desire it. You have to have portals to the outside world. You have to see something, and then it kind of creeps within you. It makes a beachhead in your heart, and then once it has a foothold within you, well, then there's room to sin. The lust of the Sahara, it's not real. It has to kind of... Follow a certain progression. You have to first see it with your eyes, and then your heart desires that, and only then the body sins. Meaning it's not organic, it's not natural. We think it's natural, maybe, but really it's not. That's what we're being told here. So, for example, says the Talmud, if someone has two ways to get to work, let's say, and in one of the ways, one of the paths, there's a house of ill repute, Says the Talmud, a person not only shouldn't go down that road and 
look at those displays. A person should even go down that road. Moreover, says the Talmud, if you choose the path that follows or that, that, that goes by the place where there is potential for sin, you choose that path. Even if you don't look, you say, you put your cap on, you, you make sure you don't look. But just by choosing to go down that road, you're already a sinner, says the Talmud. The kind of fundamental architecture of sin, says the Talmud, is that there's a certain progression. And the, the real way to stop it is not to wait until the power of the Yitzhah is at its zenith. Don't wait till you're down that road. Okay, the Yitzhah has a little bit of a foothold. And you're there. Oh, and now it's really pulsating within you. Now start fighting. No. You got to nip it in the bud. Don't choose to go down that road. Again, what we're being told here is that the Sahara, this idea of lust, it's not real. It's like almost self-imposed here. You're bringing this upon yourself by choosing to make a small concession and another small concession. Every concession, you're just expanding this monstrosity and then you wait till the actual sin, you're probably going to lose. The correct way to do it, again, with this deep knowledge of how it operates, is to slow down and say, you know what? I'm not even going to allow it the small, I'm not even going to allow the smallest of concessions. I'm, I'm going to stop it before the ball gets rolling. And that's a very smart way to avoid it. Again, with a deep knowledge of how it operates, that this lust is something which snowballs. It's not something which is a fixed entity. And if you just stop the snowball before it even gets started, well, nothing will stop you from overcoming it. Just a few more, and there's many, many sources here. The Talmud says, well, the Mishnah says, some very surprising advice. And this is from the next Mishnah after the one we mentioned earlier, Perti Avos 2.2. Rabban Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Judah the Prince, says, Combining Torah study with labor, that's commendable. Yafet Torah im derecherts. It's a good idea to take Torah study and marry it with labor. Why? Sheyedias shnehem meshtachas avon. Because toiling in both causes a person to forget to sin. If you're bored... If you're unoccupied, well, that's very fertile breeding grounds for sin. If you're busy studying Torah, you're involved, you have, you have a work, you're, you're busy all the time, you're not going to sin. That's what the Mishnah says. But if you read this statement very carefully, there's a fantastic insight here. Yedias shneim mishkachas avon. Toiling in both, both Torah and labor, makes you forget to sin. What does that mean? It means the only way for you to sin is if you remember to sin. You know, if I told you, hey, don't forget to eat, eventually you'll be remembered. You're not going to go a week with, oh, I just forgot to eat. That's a real need. You need to have, you need to have breakfast, you know, breakfast, you need to have lunch. By the time it's dinner, if you haven't eaten, I assure you, you'll be reminded. You'll remember internally. Sin, we're told, you have to remember to sin. Otherwise, you may forget it. It's not natural at all. 
Again, what it's telling us is, logically, you could go your whole life without sinning. It's possible. It's only because the eights are not, not likely. <laughs> it's not likely, but it's possible. Why? Because you, you, you could be totally fine without it. You could be perfectly healthy, robust, live a long life, 100 years, no, no problem. It's just that you're being constantly reminded to sin. The eights are sending you constant reminders. Don't forget to sin, don't forget to sin, don't forget. But if you can kind of clear your mind from its influences, you're not going to sin because you won't be reminded. You'll forget how to sin. If you're so busy, doesn't matter what you're busy with, as long as you don't allow the Yetzirah to put a flashing billboard in front of you, don't forget to sin, you'll be fine. It can be Torah study. It can be even other things. You're working hard on the field. If you're busy, you're concentrating, you're toiling, well then, you're not prone to sin. Finally, I want to share with you another suggestion. Again, these are all along these same lines. That what the Yetzirah is peddling is not real. Logically, it's bankrupt. It's only because it adds lust that makes us feel compelled to follow its advice. Says the Talmud in the book of Kiddushin, page 40b, a very strange-sounding episode. It quotes Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Tzadok was one of the great rabbis at the end of the Second Commonwealth. So think about the first century of the Common Era. And there was a Roman noblewoman that prepositioned him. And he responded, My heart is weak and I don't have stamina. Is there something to eat? So she says, let's sin together. And he says, I'm not feeling well. I'm kind of hungry. Is there any food? So what does she say? Yeah, there's food, but the food's not kosher. So he responds, what difference does it make? Someone who's about to do what we're about to do eats non-kosher. So she takes the non-kosher meat and puts it in the oven. And what does Rabbi Tzadok do? He jumps in the oven too. And she's very perplexed by his behavior. What are you doing? Why are you jumping in the oven? So he responds, someone who behaves like this, like we're about to behave, gets thrown to the fire like this. So she's already impressed with him. She says, you know what? Had I known that you were so opposed to sinning, I wouldn't have prepositioned you in the beginning. That's the episode. Very strange sounding episode. And the commentators are trying to grapple with the story. Why does he initially acquiesce to sin? And initially acquiesce to eating non-kosher? And then he has this dramatic change of heart. He jumps into the fire. What is going on over here? So one of the commentators, the Ben Yehoyada, he says, I think, a fascinating insight. He's saying that what the Talmud is telling us is a tactic that Rabbi Sadr used. He never actually entertained to accede to this Roman noblewoman's seductions. That was never part of the plan. But he was keenly aware of how the Yetzahara operates. And therefore, he devised a new way to repulse its lustful excitement that it's positioning before him. What does he do? He says, he realized that the way this lust works, it begins with a fever pitch, but right away, 
it starts to dissipate. And therefore, if you could just delay, well, then it's quite likely that it will dissipate to a certain degree that you'll be able to restore the logical equation, the logical choice, and be able to properly assess, once sober, properly assess what the pros and the cons. Again, that's, that, that's the key point. We're trying to make this a spreadsheet. Logically, what's the pros? Logically, what's the cons of each option? But the problem is there's lust. And when there's lust, there's no room for spreadsheets. Yeah, okay. But the lust has some vulnerabilities too. The lust is not going to stay the way it is forever. It's like a huge balloon that you just puncture it. It seems so formidable, but you just give it a little puncher and it just will dissipate into nothing. So he says, you know what? Okay, I need an excuse now. I have to find a way to get some more time. It's like a hostage negotiator. I just need some more time. Okay, so is there anything to eat? Not kosher. Okay, fine, whatever. Let's, let's get some more time. A few minutes later, he's sober again. The Yitzhah has dissipated. Okay, so what does he do? Now we're back on the spreadsheet. What are the benefits? What are the costs? And it's very easy for him in a clear-headed way to prevail over, over the desire. I think this survey of these teachers in the Talmud, I think all of them share the same characteristic. It's not prudent for us to try to finesse our way to victory. Because you know what? It's quite likely we'll lose. And it's quite likely that even if we win, you may win the battle, but lose the war. You may win the battle, but have a lot of collateral damage. We don't want that. We want to sidestep the battle. We want to allow our enemy to self-combust. That's the way to actually be clever in warfare. You could go, you could have 100,000 warriors on one side and 70,000 warriors on the other side, and the team with more soldiers will probably win. But is that the best way to vanquish your enemies? Maybe you could try to find a way to avoid the battle entirely, try to find a way to minimize your downside, and that would be much more effective. And here we're told to be clever, to be cunning. The eights are all, well, that's, he's deceptive. Why can't we be deceptive too? Well, how do we become deceptive? By figuring out what is the modus operandi of the enemy, understanding its vulnerabilities, understanding its strengths, understanding our strengths, understanding the situation that it places us in, and realizing that if we could find a way to remove its influence, to take the lust out of the equation, if we could put our choices on a spreadsheet, it's almost guaranteed that we'll win without any losses on our side. There's a lot of different tactics, and there's more that we haven't even mentioned. But at the core, it stems from this deep knowledge of the enemy, understanding how it works, how it operates, stopping it before it gets started, avoiding it, delaying it, redirecting it, forgetting about sin, all those, again, are all reflections of this very deep, comprehensive understanding of the enemy. And my hope is that all of us, now armed with the secrets behind this amazing antidote that will hopefully deploy it within ourselves, 
resist the temptations of the evil inclination, overwhelm him, be more clever, know the enemy, be skilled in the art of war against our opponent, and be victorious and flourish and become tzaddik and become righteous people.